The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, you are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. <laughs> I'm here with Deva Madhava Prabhu. Deva Madhava Prabhu, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, well, thank you for having me. Just watching the little trailer and being reminded of all the illustrious souls you've had on makes me even more nervous to be here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you are an illustrious soul, and I'm so glad uh, you, you're here with us. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit about um, Deva Madhava Prabhu. So I uh, heard about Ypsilanti. Like, I didn't even know how to spell the place, but I, I heard yeah, about that's a pretty good pronunciation also. <laughs> Ypsilanti, yeah. So it's in Michigan. That's where Deva Madhava Prabhu is. And uh, I recently went to go visit the place, the community, uh, for a wedding. And I was so impressed by the devotees, by the community, by their mood. Uh, and I was I was just blown away by it. I was skeptical. I was like, what's going on there? Harmony Collective? Is it? What's going on? But uh, I, I can't say enough good things about it. And uh, I want to... I wanted to have Deva Madhava Prabhu, who is the leader and the inspirer there, to come talk about it, talk about his personal journey as well. Uh, so maybe we can start there, Prabhu. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came in contact with devotees? Sure. Um, and it was a pleasure having you. That was such a sweet wedding weekend. It was really nice. Such a nice time. The whole crew was, was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I can, I'll start kind of from this the months leading up to meeting devotees it, it can be a bit of a saga story yeah. um i was in chicago area actually the the neighborhood that your Gurmaraj grew up in oh um, wow Deerfield. and the reason i was there is that for five years before um over my college summers i had been uh, working with a publishing company that prints like encyclopedia style textbooks and they recruit college kids every summer to go door to door selling those books. I just think <laughs> so I was trained in book distribution <laughs> <laughs> by this company. And just to give you a look, they started as a Bible sales company and then they transitioned in the seventies to educational material and the schedule that they would like encourage us because we're not employees we're like independent contractors, but they would say, you know, you got to, if you want to be successful and make a bunch of money, then you have to follow this schedule. So we'd wake up every day at 6 a.m. We would take a cold shower. We would take like a, an oath not to party, no drinking, no hanging out with the opposite sex. Like we we're basically living in an ashram for three months out of the year wow. so that we could make a bunch of money. That was the whole idea behind it and gain business skills and, you know, resume stuff, blah, blah. So I'd done that through my college summers. And then I graduated and my fifth um so the following summer afterwards, I was just living a very hapless life at that point. I was I was in the middle of like my existential, <laughs> what is this world about? What is it for? And, and why can't I be happy and satisfied with anything? And why is everyone making each other miserable? Can't they just stop? You know, all the kind of bubbling existential understandings that um, folks who join often have. So I was in the, the throes of that. And my buddy who had worked with this company a long time and he was excellent. He'd make like $50,000 in a summer. So he was, he was prolific. Wow. Um, yeah, good guy. He stayed in the ashram a few, a few days with me, chanted 16 rounds on Haridas Thakur's disappearance day. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> person, John Kerry. 
Um, so he actually helped some of the devotees down in North Carolina where he lives. But anyway, John said, come to Chicago with me. I know you're not doing anything. I know you're just kind of like wasting away. So come make a bit of money and then you can figure out what you're going to do after that. And so because I had no better uh, plan than I, I took his suggestion. But quickly, two weeks in, I just I had no heart for that anymore, like going door to door, trying to sell something, make some money. And I was in this beautiful neighborhood where your, your Gurmaraj writes about also this kind of existential crisis he had in that neighborhood of seeing how nice some people are living. And then just a few blocks over, seeing how other people are living and being very upset by that. Right. And I also I grew up in a low income minority neighborhood, as people would call it today. And I saw that also face to face. My parents didn't have much money, but they were excellent parents. And I had a great support system of family that, that I was provided for emotionally, financially, you know, I had what I needed. But I saw just my neighbors, my friends, they weren't. And that always put this wondering in my heart of, of why isn't this world a place where everybody can feel safe and protected? Because it seems like it's possible, but it's not happening. And so that had this like existential wondering in my heart as a child. And then when I got to Highland Park, Chicago and saw this ritzy uh, glammed up scene and, you know, everyone's lawn looks like a green carpet and they're driving a brand new Beamer or Mercedes and all the moms look like they're 30, even though they're 60. It's like, right. it's just cringy for me and I want it out. And so in my heart, since like March, I'd been hearing this voice, which I'll now attribute to Paramatma, but at the time I didn't quite have that language yet. This voice saying, go to Detroit, go to Detroit. And I had no idea. I'd never been to Detroit, no family, no friends, no job, nothing. So I just kind of put it off to the side and, and people told me it was crazy. And, you know, like, why would you go there? There's nothing there. It's like a third world country now. But after two weeks of Chicago Highland Park scene, I, I couldn't help it anymore. And I just got on a Greyhound bus with a bicycle. I had a bathing suit and three T-shirts to my name. And that was it. And I, I showed up in Detroit. Uh, essentially homeless. I had nowhere to be except there. That was where I wanted to start. And that's where your friend was. No, no, my friend was in Chicago. Oh. So I was I was selling books with them, but then I I kind of abandoned that right okay. and left them to go to Detroit. So hmm. I I landed in Detroit, and the first day that I was there, uh, I came across this place called Cobo Hall, which is where they have the big auto. Um, expo every year, the Detroit Auto Show, famous. Mm. And they were having another event at that time called the Social Justice Forum. It's like a Comic-Con, but for charities, like any organization that's doing anything good for anyone, they were there. And they'd all picked Detroit. They, they decided to have their conference in Detroit that year because Detroit was so bombed out. Yeah. <laughs> it was so neglected. It was so in need of help. But they said, let's all go there and, and churn up the do good spirit. So that was started the first day I landed in Detroit. And I thought to myself, wow, this is like, this is why the universe brought me here. I'm going to find my tribe. I'm going to find my cause. I'm going to find my people. Because I'd started to have some, again, feeling that it's, it's about service. It's about giving. But I didn't have the, the larger ideas in place yet. And so I went around to every booth for three days. And I talked, you know, people save the whales, save the children, save the migrant laborers, save the immigrants, save everyone is pointing out so many problems. And after three days, I just felt worse because it really like hit me in a heavy way that all of these people are able to pinpoint certain symptoms of some disease. 
But what that disease is, we don't know. And, and Prabhupada would later put this exact language to it when I would read his books that all of these ills in the society are symptoms of a disease of disconnection from God. And that that really, although I did, again didn't have the language, it really hit me after those three days where I was just left more disappointed and despondent after talking to all those good people, doing all those good things that I'm still not satisfied. And that just sent me into a melancholy. Uh, and I, I was finally humbled enough to uh, admit that I'm not going to be the one to figure something out. I'm not, I, I need, I need a help that no one's ever shown me before. And I need help. I, I can't figure it out on my own. And in that existential moment, that crucible, I knocked on the door of the temple president <laughs> of Detroit. Yeah. And it's oh my funny goodness. Little, what's that? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Funny little circumstance how that happened. So just before I left Chicago, the two guys that I was rooming with, we like discuss our sales each night. You know, that's what you do when you're like in sports team or whatever. So our, our little ashram book distribution, we were, and my friend Ben had said offhandedly, Indians always buy, meaning Indian people <laughs> always buy the books. And I was like, really? I've never met any because just somehow the, the territory that I had usually worked at, there weren't many Indians. Right. But he had he had somehow worked in several cities where, you know, there's like usually a neighborhood or like a, a township where all the Indians kind of congregate. Right. So he had hit one of a few of those. And he just noticed that, yeah, Indians really care about education. They care about their kids. They're going to buy the books. So that was just like a little mantra in the back of my head. Like somehow I, I took note of that. And then there in Detroit, I was going door to door with these books and no one was buying anything because they're all dirt poor and, and it, you know, education on that level is far from most of their realities and, and et cetera. And so I knocked on this devotee's door and it, uh, his wife answered and she was Indian. And in my head, I was like, cha-ching, <laughs> I'm going to get to eat. <laughs> so she, she said, you know, my husband's not here right now. Why don't you come back when he's here? And ordinarily, that, that's just a polite way of saying no. And so you, you kind of move on. But I was so desperate. I was like, okay, these guys, like, you know, they have a job. They have money. He's at work. <laughs> Let me right. go back and try to sell them a book. And sure enough, I went back. And instead of selling him a book, I bought one of his books. Or rather, he gave me one of Srila Prabhupada's books, uh, Science of Self-Realization. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is sweet. Braj Kumar Prabhu, his name is now. Uh, wonderful devotees. They still live near the temple. They still every day um, have some <coughs> service. He's still temple president. So I am um, Karuna Radhika is his wife's name. So Prabhupada's words were just everything that I'd always hoped for and, and never knew were there. And that book, especially SSR is a devotee maker. It's so well laid yeah. out yeah. that the questions one has after reading one chapter are answered in the next chapter. It's a very natural flow of thought and building into accepting Krishna consciousness in total, which is exactly what I did after reading the book. So um, thank you to Prabhupada, thank you to Braj Kumar. And, and that's kind of the short version of me uh, coming into the movement. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in, in um, Michigan with in Ypsilanti. That, like, tell us the kind of the story of how that happened. Yeah, so I moved into the ashram. I was um, <coughs> met the devotees in July and then 
I was, I had a girlfriend still in New York city. And so I was like going back and forth and the devotees were asking me to move into the ashram already, but I was like, you know, they don't know what I'm doing with my girlfriend in New York city. So I, I, I don't feel right, you know, entering into that kind of commitment, knowing the, um, expectation that it has. And, you know, I could cheat things, but I didn't want to do that. Right. So then thankfully, uh, Krishna made an arrangement where that relationship squarely ended, uh, in late February. Um, right after Shivratri, the devotee said, pray to Shivra Lord Shiva to remove your obstacles. And I was like, we don't pray to demigods. We're <laughs> pure devotees of Krishna. You know, we don't need these demigods. What is this nonsense? Prabhupada said, but the devotees like chilled me out and said, no, like you worship Tulsi Devi, worship Lord Shiva to help you in Krishna consciousness. So I was like, all right, I'll try it. Sure enough, two days later after Shivratri, like I get the the end letter for the relationship that's been going on for five years. Wow. So I took it as, you know, what it was, mercy. I moved into the ashram in March of 2011. And then that following year in, De in Detroit, 2011, that following year, I went to, my godbrother took me to Mayapur and I was initiated. And then that summer going into 2012 um, is when we started our little Krishna house in Ann Arbor. Because I'd met one devotee, Siddhari Prabhu now, but at, at the time Siddharth Chabra. Uh, who was going to University of Michigan, and he's just like the classic, like pious Indian boy who's got his heart that he wants to give to Krishna, but no one around him cares. And so he's just like on the angle towards Facebook or Amazon or whatever. And so I was on book distribution and I met him and uh, invited him to a program and he never left. And so we, we became very close and he was paying like $1,200 a month for a room in Ann Arbor because Ann Arbor is so pricey. Um, and so I said, we could like rent a house for that much. <laughs> we could we could easily have a little center. And the one of the senior devotees in Detroit, Sri Nanda Nanana Prabhu, he had suggested that I start going to Ann Arbor more and try to start something there. So on that indication, Siddhari Prabhu and I got together and we started renting a place in Ann Arbor. And then a year later, uh, we met dur during that time, we met my first wife, Falguni, and she was going to Eastern Michigan University, which is in Ipsy. And she said that, hey, Ipsy's cool, people are nicer, the, the property is cheaper, you could get a bigger place there. And so we started renting something in 2013 in Ipsy. And then in 2014, uh, on, her, on her suggestion, and then 2014, we started mortgaging what is now the Harmony Collective, the, the 108 North Adams Street property. Nice, nice. Such a cool <laughs> center you have there. It's so different than a normal, like a Hare Krishna temple. Mm. Tell us a little bit about like the vision there um, for the Harmony Collective. How how you get that name and how, what's the vision really? Hmm. The name uh, came from Siddhari Prabhu actually um, and myself. We were chewing on it in a, over making some boga one day in the kitchen. Um, we we noticed that this we, we were just kind of de facto calling ourselves Krishna House because we are near a university and young people. And so it's like, you know, right. in the movement, everyone likes to label. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know what you are. You're a Kirtaniya. You're a book distributor. You're a Pujari. So you're a Krishna House. And so we kind of took on that label, even though we weren't exactly doing things that, that those devotees do. Although all glory to that program, Kalakanta Prabhu is one of my mentors. So I, I don't take anything away from them, but it didn't quite feel right for us. And I'd, begin, I'd begun to kind of internally pray to my spiritual master that I want to serve your heart's inner desire. I want to really, you know, do that which means the most to you. 
And I started to get some indications through that prayer that taking care of the devotees that are already here is yeah. the, the service that would be pleasing. Um, as much as bringing in new people is exciting. And that's why we got the center in the first place was, you know, college town and new people and big programs for young people that's relevant and et cetera. I was noticing that Krishna is sending all of these um, young people who had already been connected to the movement, but for different reasons, didn't feel engaged or involved the way that they'd expected they would be. Right. And, and to take care of them and to encourage them and to help them develop themselves and mature was what Krishna in so many ways was indicating. So we took that name, the Harmony Collective, to indicate this mood of not having a one-size-fits-all idea of what it means to be in Krishna consciousness anymore, and instead recognize that everybody already has a relationship with Krishna. As a center, as a community, it's our responsibility to encourage that existing relationship already. And the nature of all those relationships together, if they're expressed in a healthy way, will be a harmonious one. Harmony implies simultaneous one and different. If you have like a mosaic on your wall, all the different pieces are, are different sizes and shapes and even textures. There's so much variety in the mosaic. And yet when you look at it in total, it conveys one image. Right. And, and that's the, the mood that we wanted to create, which I, I feel people expect when they come to the movement, when they read the books, when they, they hear about the archetypes of our culture, they expect a much more variegated experience than the one that they're getting in their local community or their local Sangha. And so we wanted to set that tone for us and also for others. When, when we tell people that, Hey, we're, we're the harmony collective, it feels less sectarian than like Krishna house or Iskand Ypsilanti, or, you know, it's, right. it leaves us a little more wiggle room to develop relationships with people and groups that otherwise might feel a little off put by the, the religious um, tone. Of, of a different name. Right. Yeah, I noticed that um, you, like, for example, some of our mutual friends, they spend time, they live there, but they're also kind of like working out what they want to do in their lives and things like that. I thought that was really ingenious, like that you're getting people there and it's not just like, okay, you have to be Brahmachari and you have to, to dedicate all your time to the temple. And uh, and and then when you're done with that, you will we'll ever see you again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Let us know when you're making money so you can start donating. <laughs> right, right. This is a genius idea. I mean, do you see that? Um, like, what's the long-term vision for that? I mean, is it like, I, I understand maybe those people who maybe come in as like young people who, who want to work outside and then they live in the temp in the Harmony Collective also, then they'll want to stick around when they're, when they're married. Is that, that kind of like the master plan? Uh, it's it's working out that way more than I intended, honestly. Oh, really? Nice. Um, so the the conception that we created was this idea of a next generation ashram, or sometimes we call it the launchpad ashram, right? Which is for people that have their philosophical basis in Krishna consciousness. They know what it means to do sadhana. They know the value of that. They accept Prabhupada and Krishna. And now it's time to figure out what is my life going to look like for forty years, fifty years, sixty years, living a movement-based lifestyle. That's how we frame it. That's that we all want to have that immersive experience of being a part of Mahaprabhu's culture. Mm -hmm. And we also wonder how are we going to pay the bills and where are my children going to go to school and what am I going to eat? And these questions are natural. And we see that the movement has not done a good job of answering some of them up until now. Yeah. So 
when I looked at the landscape, what can we offer here at Harmony Collective to ourselves and also the larger movement? It's helpful to have young people, that fresh energy, that like Bhakta vibe. You, you need that in a community. They're a healthy element. And I've noticed that even when we were in our kind of full on preaching days, we were never able to get the critical mass needed to have like a six or seven person Bhakta program. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a, a place where that kind of thing is happening. You have like seven or eight brahmacharis, like all on the same page, doing the same thing. Yeah. In that way, then that environment is healthy. But when you're just like one or two guys that are the brahmacharis, then I've noticed that that environment is a lot less supportive for them. And it, it, it tends towards a kind of like abusive, level of subordination between them and the rest of the congregation right like you're the guys that have to do everything we don't want to do right <laughs> and they get a whiff of that pretty quickly or they get stuck in that and then they can't conceive of themselves outside of that very narrow limited scope of service and they they leave the brahmacharya ashram and they practically leave krishna consciousness so i i surveyed the landscape and thought well we already have a lot of um places where people can go be bhaktas, right? There's Krishna house. Um, at the time, Denver had a nice ashram going on and I think they could again. There's there's a couple places in North America where there's already a decent bhakta atmosphere, but there's not really a place where there's an atmosphere where somebody can kind of stabilize their Krishna consciousness yeah. without having to worry about a rent and utilities and a full-time job right away after the ashram. So we thought, why not give people a place where they can have a little time to focus more on those long-term interests uh, that, that will help them maintain a lifestyle that will help them keep themselves connected to the movement. That's one part of the Launchpad Ashram. The other part is people like Ujvala, um, you know Ujvala well. Yes, yes. And he's been absorbed in Sanskrit study for the last year and a half. And wow. uh, he's been with us about, about that long, really two years now. And he's been with us for maybe a year and a quarter. And he is um, keeping himself to a six to 10 hour a day schedule, studying the classical approach to learning Sanskrit. And I'm so happy to be able to provide a space for him where he doesn't have to worry about the kind of overhead that a temple usually has their, their live-in uh, residents worry about. Right. He, has, you know, he has a few basic things that we expect of him. And then the rest of his time, he's able to dedicate to his personal passion, which is naturally connected to the movement. And if we were facilitating more of people's personal passions, I think the movement would be moving a lot more. People would be inspired and, and feel excited to be a part of what's happening rather than, again, this kind of very stereotype idea of what it means to be a, a devotee and how that looks in your life. So that's the other half is people who have some passion project that they want some space and time to pursue. And we want to facilitate that. In the farm, Goloka Premadam, um, we have a great commercial garden going now. And that's because we took a chance on a young man named Bhakta Dillon, who sent me a message um, a year and a half ago now and said, hey, I've, I've always wanted to farm. I saw you guys got some property, you know, would, maybe I could come down and help you guys do that. And so we gave him some seed funding and, and the resources, um, a little bit of manpower to be able to start a community garden. And he did wonderfully. He, he ran a CSA for a year, feeding 20 families, 25 families a week for like 20 weeks. And that attracted the attention of an investor who really appreciated um, the effort that he put in and the quality of the product that was coming out. And so that that investment has now gone into the land at Goloka Premadam and been a big part of why we're able to 
use the property in a nice way today for things like the wedding. So I've noticed that there's a magic when we just trust that Krishna is in people's heart. And instead of having some plan in mind for them already and trying to force them in or you know cajole them into feeling beholden to our plan, if we find out what's your plan and help them in that, support them in that, that's for me what leadership is and, and has been most satisfying trying to encourage um, Siddhari Prabhu is another nice example of somebody who's really interested in scholastic pursuits and he's done a lot of work um, uh, on a very high academic level. He was a PhD student at University of Michigan before he joined. So he has that aptitude and he was able to pursue that kind of thing working, um, you know, within our community. So, and it's, it's bearing a lot of fruit in terms of attention and, and uh, foothold in that academic space, which we know is very important to Prabhupada, but hasn't really had traction in the movement within like the last 25, 30 years. So I, I, I really summarize all <clears throat> for me, leadership has come to mean that I used to think I had to be the star of the show. That was my conception of it. I have to do everything. But really, I have to just make a show that other people can star in. And it's way more fun and it's way more exciting to create that space where many other people can come and, and live their best life for Krishna. Something that I got from Tatukaram episode, Tukaram Prabhu that I did was that his stress, his he was stressing that try to help people around you win. Yeah. Than than yourself, and that was like mind blowing to me. Like I never even thought of that. Like and and that's why people like you and people like him are so successful because they because you understand that you want other people to win along like more than you and that's what creates a community and that's so beautiful i really love that to to kind of like um ask you a little bit about maybe the challenges when it comes to that like maybe financially like someone maybe a temple president might be listening to this and saying hey i think that's a great idea but mm -hmm. i already got this thing going i got these deities already i have like i have all this overhead and things that's cool that you're doing it and you did it from scratch but we're like inheriting temples that have a lot of stuff going on already what would you say to that like what's your what's your kind of like, cause, cause you're the type of person, like if you're, I bet if you're put into a certain situation, you can like work it out and, and deal with it. Cause you have that type of like, you know, built community building and kind of that really, I appreciate that a lot. So what would your outlook be on that? That's a, an important question. Um, a saying of Prabhupada's, which is a little crude and that's probably why it always sticks for me. He said, you have to fry the fish in its own oil. <laughs> <laughs> you have to fry the fish in its own oil. And it's a very beautiful thing to accept that everyone's situation from the detail side is going to be a little different, but the principle has to be served. And that, that's what it means to, to do Dharma. In, within Varnashram, everyone's place and position is different. The particulars are what we talk so much about, cows and carrots and seniors and juniors and blah, blah, blah but we don't well understand the principles. So then we argue about the particulars. Right. <laughs> we can't see the particulars because we're not recognizing the principles that are meant to be served and highlighted by those different procedures. So similarly in your community right now, what does it mean to really start taking care of devotees? What does it really look like to, to stop Kalakanta Prabhu, another um, wonderful example of someone who lives and really he he kind of shared this ethic at the north american temple president meeting and and phrased gave it words for me 
he said at Krishna House, when they really started, the ashram really started moving. Now they have 30 people every semester. Um, <clears throat> that really started happening when they stopped praying to Krishna for people to do their projects and instead started praying for people to take care of. Mm. Not, okay. please, Krishna, send us this person so we can do the prasad or we can do the sankirtan van or we can do the new pujari standard, whatever. But please send us people that we can care for. Please send us Vaishnavs that we can serve in whatever way they need. And as soon as he shifted that frame in their community, that now they have 30 people in their ashram and they have no problem <laughs> with money or uh, resources in terms of manpower. They have a, a happy, willing crew of Haribol Bhaktas and Bhaktins ready to do Harinam and book distribution and Prashad distribution. So it's really the principle first. And if somebody goes into this conversation wanting, already having an end in mind, right? Kind of a goal in mind. Yeah, we're going to get this project done because I'm going to take some clever thing that Deva Madhava or Tukaram or Nam Ras said and, and twist it in, then you're missing the point <laughs> that mm. it's really a paradigm shift away from projects and towards people. The Krishna Con Mahaprabhu didn't start a single temple. And this is an irony for me when I go to the temple president meetings and they want to discuss preaching and they want to discuss why the movement seems so stagnant. It's because the whole conversation is around temples <laughs> instead of people, instead of devotees and relationships, the whole conversation, not I'm being a little bit dramatic, but the majority of the conversation and the fundamental conception is still around these buildings and this property and this institution rather than the people. Uh, so without that shift happening, the details aren't clear, but when it does, then you can see the resources that you have available to you. Uh, something I've wanted to do here, which I, I haven't had the time to, but we, we had a little traction for, is having a, a live-in launchpad kind of space for young people who are either students, entrepreneurs, social justice types, or um, ex-military. And you create an ashram basically for them, like ashram light. You charge them $500 a room or whatever, like the going rent is for a single bedroom apartment in your locality. You charge them that much for their rent and you provide them some prashadam every week. So like four or five meals covered, a little coaching, counseling, and a little like meditation, a little sadhana practice, nothing heavy, nothing except Krishna consciousness but just a, enough of a sattvic experience that many people out there are looking for today, especially when they're a student or an entrepreneur, for you to solve the problems of their living space, uh, a healthy community to be connected to, some food to eat. You're, you're checking a lot of things off their list there. Yeah, We have so many temples that own 10, 12 houses. Most of them sitting empty or being rented out to total you know, uninterested persons in the movement. That's a very simple but uh, powerful way that we could be doing some preaching with those same properties, bringing in income and creating people that are going to be friends of Krishna, at least, and maybe become more, maybe become something, you know, deeply integrated into the community. Wow. That's, just, wow. that's one idea. But again, that the principle, it's people, not projects. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. Start listening more and speaking less. And, and the answers will be revealed to you. What is the what is that oil that your community has to fry the fish in that will will make it a nice thing? In sp specifically, when you talk about people and not projects, what does that? What are some components of that? Like when you're looking at only 
Like, let's look, let's look only towards people. Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll take it. Our farm situation. Um, Beautiful farm, by the way. For those of you who haven't been there, please go check it out. It's like it's like Mayapur. Like you look into the fields. <laughs> Beautiful. I loved it there. I, I was just sitting there and chanting, and I was just like, "This is what this is what farms are meant to be like." I don't hear any cars. I don't hear a highway. I can just like do bhajan, and it was beautiful. Just wanted to throw that out there. I appreciate that advertisement. That's what we were hoping for. And the <laughs> wedding was a big impetus to make it look nice. It was like our first big event there since we've had it. Yeah, people were saying like, it's never, it doesn't look like this all the time. <laughs> if you'd come two weeks before, then you'd be saying something a little different, but that's right. how it goes, right? <laughs> so everybody want, you know, farm and, and eco and Prabhupada self-sufficient. That's a thing in our communities, right? And so, and it's a, it's a, a guilt that many people have that we're, there's not more of that. But when yeah. I started to examine, all right, what does it really take? I started speaking to people who are farmers and, and CSA runners and et cetera in our area, not devotees necessarily, but just people that do those things. It takes a lot of willpower, a lot of coordination, uh, a lot of dedication and a certain like just taste for that kind of work. And I wasn't sure if we had any of those things. So I realized that far way before a farm, we needed families who were strong and healthy and happy together. So I, right. I made a little equation, families before farms, families, and then relationships are greater than resources. These were things that I started to speak about in the community and, and other leaders like Uma and, and Siddhari Prabhu and Vana, and we, we all got on the same page around these ideas and we started uh, expressing those to the community and people started to realize, oh yeah, if we get a thing like a farm, it's not the farm itself. That's the goal. It's the, how that resource is going to facilitate deeper relationships for us, deeper connection, more opportunities to serve. And so creating that sense of the goal, even within your people, that the whole point of whatever it is we're doing is to come together and feel satisfied in each other's company, <laughs> nothing yeah. else. And the satisfaction yeah. comes from chanting and hearing the Lord's Leela first. Then, okay, take care of the cows. Then, okay, cook a, cook a nice offering, uh, paint a nice mural, whatever the other thing is that you might want to do. First, hear the Lord's Leela and chant his names together. And if you keep those things in the center and build your relationships around it, then the resources that you need in your space to do that in a progressive way with your Sangha, Krishna will make that clear. So when we started really emphasizing healthy families and, and this, we started something called Grihastas Anonymous, <laughs> kind of like a, you know, a tongue in cheek reference to like how embarrassed Grihastas are to be Grihastas and to have the problems that they have right? and creating a space where people can come together and realize, oh, we're not the only ones that go through this. And actually it's basically normal because everyone else is experiencing the same frustrations that we do. So maybe it's not us. Maybe it's just the nature of the thing. And it, it kind of depressurizes the situation. As soon as you talk about a problem, 50% of it is solved because it, it takes it out of this like very personal pointed experience. Then people started to really lean into each other a lot more than, than they previously did when it was just, you know, we meet for programs and we chant Hare Krishna and we recite the Bhagavatam and that's why we're together. Uh, and from that now, so many resources, the, the farm, the restaurant, another center. Uh, and now we're, we're discussing about living in a neighborhood, a Krishna neighborhood. But again, I'm, I'm being really careful. And, and those of us who are helping to kind of guide the discussion on that project, 
we're being really careful to emphasize that this Krishna neighborhood is not a self-sufficient community to demonstrate to the world simple living and high thinking in the kind of eco-model way that we've all fantasized about. If we can live together for 40 years, that will be our offering to the world and to the movement. Look, we were happy together for 40 years in close proximity. Right. <laughs> be impressed because it, it's hardly done anywhere else. So that's, that's like the, the benchmark we're shooting for. And it, it's a very accessible thing for anyone because many people won't be able to live on the farm. They'll still want to go work in the city. They'll still want to send their kids to a public school or, you know, some secular school, whatever, whatever. But let's all live together. Let's all walk out the front door and be able to sit in Kirtan or take Prashad and, and that be our success. It's, it's more than we grew up with. We're offering our children more than we grew up with. Let's be satisfied in that. Um, and then, our children's children can think about self-sufficiency and you know living off the land totally, et cetera, et cetera, because they'll have that foundational experience of the value of community, which we're not even convinced of ourselves yet because we don't live in it. So allowing that experience for ourselves, seeing that that's our real austerity um, has been, I, I think, a, a strong point of our community that no, no project ever usurps that recognition of the importance of relationships that are healthy and respectful. I remember you were telling me about that Christian neighborhood thing when I was there. Is that something you want to talk about? Um, or is it like, you know, some people have a thing where like, if you say too much, then. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I basically shared the idea for it there already. We, you know, yeah. we have now it's, it's my, I take it as my responsibility as the community director that um, the needed resources to facilitate relationships going deeper and further are that's one of my services is to you know recruit and to bring in that or, or bring in the people that can bring in that like the example with dylan being able to do the vegetables right um, so our our hope for a christian neighborhood is just that we we have a semi-rural setting where devotees can live in relatively close proximity um, the children can play without having to worry about, you know, who, who else is around. And if we can create that for ourselves, we'll be very happy. And it's kind of natural over the next two, three years, because anyway, people are buying houses now and, and families are stabilizing and people are having children and people that used to live in the ashram are now maturing. Um, it's just a, a kind of natural next step that I see. And I haven't seen Krishna deny us at any step when we take it for the right reasons. Right. Um, that's one of the things I tell myself all the time. It's never money. The, the question is never, it's never money in my experience. Somehow Krishna will send it. We know, we've heard the stories of money falling from the sky right, for devotees in the old days. And it, it happens just like that. If you're earnest in your pursuit, if your endeavor is, is with sincerity. And if it's not happening like that, in my experience, it's Krishna saying, hey, I need you to look at something differently. You're not seeing exactly what I want you to see you know, the way that it, it will be wholesome for everyone. I say sometimes Krishna gives you, you enough rope to tie a knot, but not enough to hang yourself. <laughs> and so it, he's, he's slow walking a lot of us with good reason. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's is there, is there, uh, you know, sometimes devotees who like to do new things or think in a different way, they feel perhaps sometimes challenged by the authority of ISKCON in the sense of, uh, you know, kind of reining them in a little or kind of keeping things, you know, realistic or financially or whatever it is. Have you experienced anything like that being like, what's your relationship with the local uh, governing body commission and, and things like that? 
Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Well, I have Malati Prabhu as my GBC, uh, which I feel very fortunate for because she's a kind of maverick, not kind of. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's the OG maverick of the movement, <laughs> along with a few others. And she has that mood of live and let live, serve and let serve. Right. That, uh, how we do things is not exactly how she would do things, but she doesn't mind because she sees the result mm. that people are becoming Krishna conscious and, and things are faithful uh, in general to Prabhupada's mission. I, I'll admit that I do worry, you know, when Malati Prabhu um, retires somehow or other, then who is going to be her successor and, and what's their mood going to be? Um, because I know people that have a more problematic relationship with their GBC, despite their own earnestness and their own, um, you know, capacity to serve, they're, they're stifled. So it's, um, it's a bit of a, a concern uh, on our side. But the, yeah, the whole institution itself is, is a little, um, it's filled with a sense of self-importance that's unhealthy right now. Um, the, the whole aftermath of Prabhupada departing and the mistakes that were made has resulted in, among other things, uh, a sense of self-importance for membership within the institution without looking and examining closely why is that valuable in the first place. Because membership in ISKCON doesn't take you back home, back to Godhead. It's You don't get to show some identity card at the pearly gates of Goloka and, <laughs> and say, you know, I, I have my visa. It was stamped by ISKCON. That's not how it works. <clears throat> People have and will continue to go back to Godhead without being a member of ISKCON. So the, the institution doesn't do well right now helping people uh, see that and, and recognize its own value then. That's the irony is that people are expecting ISKCON to do things for them that ISKCON can't do. And in that way, distracting people from the things ISKCON can do <laughs> to help and support them in their- Can you give an example? Can you give an example of that? Uh, sure. Well, the most pointed one would be finding a spiritual master that- uh, the idea that ISKCON has kind of curated a group of people who are safe to take initiation from. And in fact, wow. the only people that you can take initiation from is, is for some people, the idea that's been put out. And it's not that ISKCON is meant to be totally hands off in that discussion around the relationship between guru and disciple, but Srila Prabhupada in his seven purposes of ISKCON, the first and primary and, and the one we see him referencing most aside from maybe book distribution would be education, education, ISKCON is an educational institution. So if we think about a university, I'm, I'm here at University of Michigan, and the founder of Google comes from the University of Michigan. Oh, really? Yeah, the guy that invented Google, one of like two guys. Now, the Unabomber also comes from the University of Michigan, the oh, most wow. famous domestic terrorist in the history of America and probably the world, right. comes from University of Michigan. University of Michigan doesn't tell anybody about the Unabomber, and nobody asks them about him. Nobody blames the University of Michigan for the Unabomber and his escapades, but everybody glorifies them for, you know, creating the guy that created Google. And they're happy to put that on their brochures <clears throat> because they gave the same education to both. Mm. And in fact, the Unabomber, he was, he was a math mathematician. He was a math guy. And so was the Google guy. I was, I, I wanted to even look, maybe they were classmates. <laughs> wow. Kind of ironic, but the, the purpose of, of an institution is education. But that education is to inform relationship, going back to the, the hallmark of our culture, what, why have any of this in the first place is for connection, connection with Krishna and the Vaishnavas. 
So by being educated within the framework of ISKCON that they could provide, I can then with my own capacity go out and make the choice. Who is my spiritual master? Who is not? Who, who do I trust? Who do I, I feel close to? And who do I keep my distance from and just offer you know, folded hands because I see they chant Hare Krishna and they're, they're generally a Vaishnava. So the, the institution is giving people the unhealthy idea that we can curate for you who is a worthy spiritual master. And then when somebody shows themselves to be maybe not worthy of that role, then the people who took shelter of that person don't have the responsibility of looking at themselves and figuring out why they they fell into this situation. Why did Krishna lead me into this relationship, which has turned out to be dissatisfying? Instead, they can point the finger at the institution mm. and say, oh, Iskhan said, and it's their fault that now my spiritual life is in the situation it's in because they said that this person was safe and it turned out that they weren't. <clears throat> so that psychology permeates every other relationship and every other dynamic that we have. We're waiting for ISKCON to be Krishna conscious for us rather than seeing ISKCON has pooled resources. It's like the library. I can go into the library and I can read a book about anything, model cars, pornography, video games, or I can get one of Prabhupada's books. It's all at the library. So in a similar way, ISKCON is meant to offer a kind of curated library, educational experience. Maybe, again, the university example is probably more appropriate. A curated educational experience that faithfully presents the Siddhanta, but then it's on the individual to apply that. Always has been, always will be. And the attempt of the, the institution to control that ability of the individual to express themselves, it just continues to create the frustration that we see in people feeling uninspired, disenfranchised, ignored, abused, all the things that we hear too often from the mm. I think, um, you know, I agree with you. Uh, I, I don't like the rubber stamping, curating thing personally. But, but then also when I talk to people about that, they're like, what's the other, what's the other option? Hmm. It's, it, you know, it's like, okay, we, you know, we have a, someone who wants to be a guru and um, maybe they're not. And if we don't have that, then they're like kind of just, you know, if they're really charismatic and really cool and have to do nice kirtan or give nice classes, they might not be guru material, but they outwardly look like that and people are attracted to them. And then that, per, you know, the person who I was talking to, they say, maybe they can be misguided because of that. So what yeah. would you... It's, it's a wonderful question. It's the natural objection, right? That, well, then we're going to end up with a bunch of fake gurus. <laughs> right, right. But right now we have a bunch of fake disciples in the sense that we have disciples depending on an institution to be Krishna conscious for them, which right. creates a big malaise, right? A, just a lethargy, right? Like waiting around for the GBC to wave some magic wand, bippity boppity bhakti. Right. It, it's not how it works. And it's, I'm not saying that they're not genuine disciples in that they want to be Krishna conscious, but there's this, this, um, yeah, this laziness, this entitlement that's been inculcated into them. So my, my wife, Rindavani, she has a wonderful saying. She says, every position has its price. Every position has its price. So if we look at the current circumstance where the institution is controlling that guru disciple relationship, and then that affects every other relationship, temple president and, and congregant, uh, congregant to congregant, it, it affects every other relationship because our relationship with Guru is our relationship with Krishna, is our relationship with everyone else. If that relationship isn't healthy, then no other relationship can be healthy. 
So if we look at the flip side now, the poor Vipaksha, and say, okay, well, if we just let laissez-faire, anyone who wants to be guru and any disciple that wants to take shelter of them is allowed, that's the system Krishna created. That is the natural atmosphere. Right. Krishna has depended on, the devotees have depended on, the parampara has depended on since time immemorial. And yes, there will be cheaters. And yes, there will be um, sentimental, overzealous disciples. But we have that anyway. And, <laughs> and those people right now have the cloak of the, the um, disguise of institutional credibility to further hide behind and to create cronyism and to create all kinds of um, things which just make the problem worse. Whereas if it's out in the open <clears throat> and you have some people who take shelter of someone who they shouldn't have, it's on them. That's their problem, not my problem. But at present, if somebody else's spiritual master falls down, my spiritual master is implicated in that mistrust also. The faith and the, the um, ability of my spiritual master is now naturally called into question because somebody else's guru fell down because they're all tied together in this goofy three-legged, you know, 900-legged race that we're all trying to run back, going back to Godhead. My guru is not your guru, and your guru is not my guru. But this idea is, is again, institutionalized, and it's very unhealthy. It's so it, Even from a, a relational standpoint, all other things aside, it's so difficult as Kali Yuga creatures to offer our heart to even one or two people. <laughs> and I'm supposed to, like, blanket accept 80 or so people as somebody I can trust wholeheartedly and, and give myself to completely and take anything from as just the pure mercy of God, that's so unreasonable. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. so unnatural. And, and because people don't have that capacity, you see this very stereotyped, walled off, like protectionist approach, just the Haribol Prabhu uh, Krishna conscious version of Krishna consciousness pervading the society because people are so scared to offer their heart. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really, you know, and, and uh, a lot of devotees I, I was talking to about this, they referenced your disciple course uh, post on Facebook, which I really appreciated. Hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So ISKCON, ha for those of you who don't know who are not, I have a lot of devotees, all kinds of devotees who listen to this, but uh, we have the ISKCON disciple course. And so this course uh, is a course that you need to take before you take initiation in ISKCON by an ISKCON guru. And so I took this course uh, with my wife who was required to take the course just for out of curiosity and to be with her and to do it. And uh, it was a very interesting experience to say the least. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that course and uh, some of the aspects of it that we find challenging or you find challenging, first of all. Sure. Well, you've taken it. So I've only heard from people that have taken it. Some of my, um, you know, some of my candidates here who wanted to take initiation from various spiritual masters, they had to take it at that point. It yeah. was institutionalized when I was um, coming through. And <laughs> unfortunately, I've had four different people decide that they don't want to take initiation after taking this. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and that's out of a pool of like maybe 14 or so total mm -hmm. who have, have come through here and, and we've been their 
um, connecting point, so to speak, their official connection. That's a pretty big percentage of sincere people who who went away after reading some of the. It's basically a terms of agreement. You know, if if you read that thing that that websites put up and ask you to click agree on before you go into the website. If you actually read that thing, you probably wouldn't go in the website. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm selling my soul to it and they can do with me what they will, but I, just for me to see this picture, I'm going to click agree. So when people were in that course, their general experience as they reported back to me was that they basically had to disavow any appreciation for another Sangha. Uh, they had to see their own spiritual master as a kind of like placeholder for Srila Prabhupada rather right. than their spiritual master. And Prabhupada is their spiritual master. There was this, it's like Ridvik light, basically, just one step away from the Ridvik Vad that Prabhupada is the only spiritual master. The, the current guru is considered a kind of placeholder for you or, you know, some kind of facilitator, but not really your spiritual master. And none of these things were how I presented Krishna consciousness to them because I was presenting what Prabhupada presents in his books. <laughs> and right. so the idea of a disciple's course itself is quite healthy, I think. And, and I remember people being excited to go into it, thinking, great, I, I would like to know more about what is expected and what does it mean to be a disciple. But what it became within ISKCON is an ISKCON membership course sign the terms of agreement, say the Pledge of Allegiance for being a member of ISKCON, which is not necessarily the same thing as being a good Gaudiya Vaishnava disciple. The two are not the same. Yep. They, they can be opposed. And that's unfortunately what's becoming more and more the case is that the, the hallmarks of a healthy Gaudiya Vaishnava are not the hallmarks of a card-carrying ISKCON member. And that's a big problem. That's a good distinction to make that it's not they're not the same thing. Um, I, I, I felt when taking the course, from what I remember, there was a lot of quotations of like letters of Prabhupada saying, you know, like when you said appreciation of other sanghas and things like, you know, stay away from my God brothers. There's like one letter that he wrote to one person and, and they were like, okay, you got to do that. And then at the end, I was like, it seems that you, you're quoting a lot of letters and it's kind of just like making it up as you go, kind of just like trying to fit whatever the, whatever message that you want to come across like put across you just find a letter for that specific <laughs> situation <laughs> they're like yeah it is kind of like that they're to be honest with me and i was just like oh my god yeah anyways um i, I appreciate <laughs> some of it some of the the things that were said in there for sure uh but a lot of it was was things that i did have issues with um i guess I, when we were talking earlier, you you said that you feel like the relationship with the guru is like where the is like where the, most of the issues are 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 coming from, uh, for 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 all of ISKCON perhaps even. Could you elaborate on that? Like, what do you mean exactly? Well, it's our Siddhanta that I'm not making. You know, it's it's not me. I'm just pointing out the natural. It's kind yeah. of like. The, the situation with the cows on the planet right now and how much reaction we see going on in the world and how, I'm not sure if you saw that movie, Cowspiracy, but... Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, it's an excellent film. And the conclusion is the worst thing that we're doing as humans right now, among all the bad things we're doing, <laughs> is the way that we're treating mother cow, which is a proof in the negative 
of the power of a positive relationship with the cow, right? That's, that's actually substantiation for our claim, which is that there's a, a, a mystic level of kind of auspiciousness that can come into human society if the relationship with cow is wholesome. The proof in the negative is going on at the moment. And so the, our siddhanta is that your relationship with your spiritual master is the, the benchmark for your existence. <laughs> if you've taken initiation, then your relationship with that person determines your relationship with everyone else and the most important person, also Krishna. So then if it, within our own society, if we have this, these shackles put on the, the institution of guru, where we're allowing, and let's just take it to the place where most people are most familiar, this idea of women diksha gurus. It's, that is itself a red herring. That's a, a distracting discussion. The idea that should we let women initiate? There's, there's no question of that being allowed. If you're allowing women to act as shiksha gurus, which we are, Shri right. Prabhupada and Krishnadas Kaviraj are both very clear in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Adi Lila, chapter one, the spiritual master, right? Why does that, the, the summum bonum of all Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy and, and Lila, the first chapter is a discussion about the spiritual master because of the primacy of that relationship. And what do both our acharyas say there? If you make a distinction between diksha and shiksha, then you're making an offense. So if you're going to allow women to preach, to share Krishna consciousness, to advocate for others, to trust them, trust me, do like me, be like me. And then you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But you, you can't sit in front of a fire with them and hand them a set of japa mala and give them a new name. You can't do that. Yeah. Then you're creating hypocrisy. You, you've now baked into the institutional framework offense to guru. It's it's a it's a uh, institutionalized policy. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a policy to offend Guru Tattva in ISKCON right now. Mm. And what can we expect the result of that to be? How are we supposed to chant Shudanam? How are we supposed to relate well with the world? How are we supposed to do service for Krishna in a wholesome, cooperative way? If I'm offending my guru or others, spiritual masters, then I'm naturally not going to have a wholesome relationship with my temple president. And I was discussing this yesterday with one temple president here in North America, uh, a dear friend of mine, somebody I admire, somebody who's really fighting the good fight. Uh, and we were discussing how in the temples, there's this malaise, as I've already brought up um, also, where you just, it's so mind boggling and, and frustrating. It's the hardest part of being a, a community leader is that you have to tell people to do things they should want to do. You have to tell people to go to Bhagavatam class. You have to tell people to go on Harinam and clean up after themselves and like all of that. It's like there's some element of that that's naturally there, <clears throat> but it's to an unhealthy degree. There's this dependency on being told what to do at every moment. It's this kind of sycophantic dependency. And that comes from this need of the institution, this, this uh, culture that the institution has created. We will tell you who is guru. We will tell your gurus how they should behave how they should instruct you, how they should uh, mete out your service. And that trickles down then into temple president and congregant and congregant and person they're preaching to. It pervades every relationship. Any problem that you see anywhere is actually a symptom of that dynamic. And I'll even, I'll, I'll go into the edgy realm of the current issue with one uh, prominent ISKCON sannyasi and the child protection issues that have come up around that case. If you look at that circumstance, the real issue here is that he's a spiritual master approved by the institution. Right. 
it would be completely unnatural and inappropriate to tell since earnest disciples of his who want to continue being his earnest disciples, it would be completely out of the question to tell them that he can't be their guru anymore. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't me. make any sense. It's absurd. Yeah. But it's also, I, I think it's safe to say it's a natural and obvious thing to do to make sure that that person has no official formal leadership position in ISKCON anymore. No more temple president, no GBC, no on the board of anything. I think that's for most people a natural thing that should happen. But because the guru element is conflated with an institutional position, now there's all this confusion and all this this waiting and and make a committee and and just treading water, trying to avoid the awkward circumstance we've made for ourselves. How do we how do we get ourselves out of of like this 35, you know, whatever, 40 year kind of web that we've wound ourselves into. Martin Luther King said that it's always the right time to do the right thing. (laughs) This is the beauty of the Mahabharata, which I recently read. I'd never read it before. And and it was a big mistake because uh, it's brought so much insight into the Bhagavad Gita and just social dynamics. And Yudhisthira is the, the hero of the Mahabharata actually because he always chooses dharma he always depend even no matter how absurd and and against the odds it looks that dharma would win and and a dharma or some other convenient choice more expedient choice would be the smarter wiser thing to do in this particular situation because it's so unique and it's so special and we we need to make a concession here no you just hear every time without doubt without fail dharma and everything works out. Krishna is by Yudhisthira's side at the end and, and everywhere else in that book, in, that, in those pastimes. And so it's never the wrong time to say, if you want to take shelter of someone and that person wants to offer it to you, then that's between you guys. Now, how a, another technical point, technical, but kind of um, structural point. This is where the temple president role again becomes very important in ISKCON in a way that it hasn't been in decades, but it was when Prabhupada was around. The temple president was counted on to be curating the local Sangha. So if you have some goofball who says he's initiating and he's got 80 you know, followers and their, their um, sadhana every day is to sit naked by the local river and chant their japa, it's on the local temple president to say, thanks guys, but you can stay by the river. Right. You can't come in here. You can't come into our temple with that idea of things because that's not ah. how we've approached it, right? Right, right. I see what you're saying. Again, the temple presidents and local leadership have responsibility to care about their people, to look into their lives, to understand what's going on, what's their understanding. Are they really following or do they just have that thread around their chest? Because that's all anyone knows these days. I know so many nonsense people on the altar right now. And so many bhaktas who belong up there compared to the nonsense people, because all we look at, okay, they have the thread so-and-so's disciple for 20 years, good enough. But if you deinstitutionalize the guru relationship, then suddenly the onus comes to the, the local leadership again to be very careful about who you're letting in to speak and to, to worship and to lead the kirtan and to, to interact with your people. And, and that gives that, that, role power that the um 
local congregants, local members of the community need to see in someone. They need to see someone who has vision, has ability, has the capacity to make choices, not somebody sitting thousands of miles away in a boardroom and once a year they, they roll out, you know, this, this long treatise of declarations that nobody then pays attention to. Mm. They need in front of them somebody they feel is a capable decision maker, ready to make decisions about uh, good and bad things that happen. And that would, again, put the responsibility back into that role if you uh, decentralize the guru relationship. This is fantastic. I, you've obviously thought a lot about this. What challenges do you foresee in you know, implementing this kind of, this kind of change, you could say. <clears throat> I, I have thought about a lot this, the last two and a half, three years, this has been my overwhelming concern. Um, Is that just, just, just to interject there, you, you did, have you been thinking about it because it's something you've observed and you've saw like, this is a real issue. Yeah. It's, it's the way my mind works. That's like, I, I'm not particularly good at anything. And I laugh like the, you know, the wedding recently and like John Mosh to me, I didn't know what to do with myself on John Mashmi because everybody else was doing you know, the things that need to be done. I, I don't. That's a leader know. right there because everyone, everyone's doing something and you're not doing. You're the one from the back pushing everybody. Hey, but well, but but I think I heard it from you. Even you said it like um, you don't know what to do. Like uh, Ujul's the better at giving class than you, and yeah. someone's doing better kirtan than you. Someone is washing pots better than you. You've you've put that whole thing together. That's that's a testament to your leadership. May that that's one way to see it, but another way is that Krishna wanted me, uh, you know, somebody who really knows what they're doing in all those roles, and so he sent them to humble me, uh, because I thought I knew what I was doing. But anyway, to come back to the question, yeah, structurally, um, yeah, I just I stay up at night, like thinking about Prabhupada's movement and, and wanting to serve my spiritual master. He said, make the ideal ideal situation in Ypsilanti, and that's a tall order, but it's it's one I cherish because it's it's something to live for um right. there's radnath maraj likes to say if you don't have something you're willing to die for you have nothing to live for so i guru mukha padmavakya and when i was why is it so damn hard to do something nice in iskhan <laughs> when you meet individual devotees they're so sweet they're so capable they're so kind they're so sincere why is it so difficult what is this malaise what is this cloud over everyone's head <laughs> And this is what, I, this is in my introspection and, and examination and inquiry and hearing, this is what it comes to. Our relationship with guru is our relationship with everyone else. And because there's this fundamental deviation from the, the natural culture of guru tattva, then ISKCON is becoming increasingly defunct. And it's, it's sad, but as again, overnight, <laughs> today, right now, we could, we could undo that policy there's many reasons why that won't happen. And so then what, what to do in the meantime, I don't really care anymore if the person is approved by ISKCON or not in terms of their spiritual status as an initiating spiritual master, because the system that Krishna has set up is already functioning. You yeah. can't make it not function. It's like the discussion around Varnashram. It's a mistake to think we have to establish Varnashram. Varnashram is existing. It's just existing in a hapless way because people don't recognize the dynamics there. But there's still Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Shudras, and Brahmanas in every society on the planet. Similarly, Krishna's system of natural sharing of affection and trust between guru and disciple, that's going on all over the planet. It's going on in ISKCON because that's what Prabhupada wanted to see happening. That's why he established it. 
So to just acknowledge that and, and give permission for a person to say, I know people that are initiated by people that are not ISKCON initiating spiritual masters, and you do too, but they still function within ISKCON and, and there's a kind of like tongue in cheek or, or like underground railroad of, of um, discipleship happening. And I, I say, keep going and, and don't, um, I'm, I would be, I make an advertisement right now. Anybody that wants to come, that's, that's faithful and fine. You know, you'll be subject to my vetting, but if you want to come to the Harmony Collective and have an initiation ceremony, especially a woman, because that will be the biggest um, demonstration of, of the need for this to change. If, if there's a woman who's ready to give Diksha publicly, then we're ready to host you, not as a spectacle, but as wow. a demonstration of what's happened already. <laughs> we're not letting you do anything. We just want people to celebrate and see what you've already done, which is put Krishna in the heart of someone who now wants to say thank you yeah. in its most committed and profound way. And so again, yeah. subject to our vetting as a community, yeah. we're happy to have you and to host that ceremony and to celebrate that relationship with you and your disciple or disciples. Iskan, Iskan India is listening and and <laughs> ready to ready to descend upon Ypsilanti. Anyway, um, just a little another plug. Uh, in in the first week of October, Garuda Prabhu and Bashu Ghosh Prabhu are going to come on and debate. Ooh. I'm going to be moderating it. They, they're like, hey, we want to come on and talk about what Ooh. we do. I was like, okay, let's do it. As long as you guys are respectful. And they're like, yeah, we're super respectful. Don't worry about it. So <laughs> in October, they're going to come on and talk about women, Diksha Gurus. It should be, it should be interesting. That'll um, be a see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Anyway, um, I, I hear a lot of devotees, probably more young people, say, I love my guru, but ISKCON, I, I, I can be within ISKCON but I'm not going to like really interact with the, the institution because my guru is, is like, you know, I love my guru and it's all about my guru and I, and I trust them. But when it comes to him being part of ISKCON, it's like, I'm not so sure about that. And I see devotees like yourself who are really trying to like make it a better place and a more acceptable to the newer generation, the guru Kuli generation and I just want to talk a little bit about that. What do you feel is like the issue there and how to fix that even, or does it need to be fixed even? Cause I personally feel that myself. I don't like to like really say my opinions on things on the show just cause I'm a, like, it's like a journalistic thing, but I yeah, do, I do a wonderful job of that, by the way. Thank you. Thank like you. That's some, one of the things I really admire about you on the show. Thank you. Um, but, but I do feel like that sometimes like, I did my part in being in the ashram and trying to do my thing, but it's just, I got so many walls and I, and it's just like, my life is so short. I'm only like 36. I'm going to, and then, you know, I don't have much time left. I got to like, you know, get going with my spiritual life, with my family and things. So what do you think about that? Um, I'll, I'll take it back to something I said earlier, which was that my guru is not your guru. And when it, when it's gone, puts a, a rubber stamp on a guru and says, this is who's approved and authorized. There's a subtle implication that all of us have to accept all those people mm. as, as that position of guru in our heart. And that's so unnatural. It's so unhealthy. It's antithetical to how that relationship is meant to be. The living entity, we're little jivas. We don't have much. <laughs> our capacity is minute. So our capacity to trust and truly give of ourselves 
is uh, limited and it's meant to only be within a very small community, Sangha, and, and with a few people. So then when you think about ISKCON, and I'm like, I'm over here in North America and I have to accept ISKCON India, it becomes so difficult. Not to, I don't mind ISKCON India for the most part, but mm -hmm. that implication for most people, I, I, I have a broad kind of global way of thinking. It's easy and natural for me. But for most people, it's not. It, it scares the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. And the implication that I have to accept these other 300,000 people when I accept my spiritual master is intimidating and terrifying. And it wow. creates one of two things often. Either one, the people don't. They stay around and they stay nearby, but they never commit. Or two, they commit, but they remain very aloof, very distanced and guarded in their uh, dealings with the Sangha because it's too scary to jump in otherwise. This is also the problem with the internet, frankly. It, it, we're not meant to be hearing and seeing from so many different people in so many different places. It's yeah. look at Chaitanya Charitamrita. You want to go hear from a sadhu, you have to walk. <laughs> <laughs> you got hundreds, thousands of miles of footsteps in between you and that sadhu to meditate and, and conceive of the surrender that you're going to offer them when you get there. Today, I just click. And if I don't like, I click again and I click and I click and I click and I scroll. And that's my surrender to, to it's such a overexposure of relationship. Most people can't manage it. And ISKCON isn't helping anybody by creating this hegemon of personalities that we all have to accept. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating points. Fascinating points, Prabhu. Uh, let's look at the comment section. For those of you listening, I'm going to start. I forgot about that. Time, probably a good time to take questions now uh, for Deva Madhava Prabhu. Some really amazing points have been uh, mentioned here on the on the talk here. Uh, so this is from the beginning. Is that place under GBC or managed separately? This is regarding the Harmony Collective. So I think you mentioned it. Yeah, that um, Malati uh, Prabhu is the GBC. Um my my one year at the Harmony Collective is the best I've had in my nine years of Krishna consciousness. Look at that testimony right there. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, question here. How do you facilitate those service, life, dream, quest conversations after programs and environments when other uh, cough senior devotees eavesdropping might not be on the same page with respect to withholding judgment and emphasizing encouragement? Um, yeah, well, that, the proof is in the pudding, as Srila Prabhupada said. We have vegetables now because we did this. We have somebody who's able to translate Sanskrit because we did this. <laughs> we have uh, substantiation for the value of the Puranas within a secular scientific frame because we took on this ethic. So I'm, I'm really at, at a place in my own, uh, in our community is at a place where it's like it's working. <laughs> And if somebody disagrees or thinks that it's not working, then prove it yourself by doing something different. And, and we'll follow you if it, it becomes something uh, powerful and worthy. But like it's working for us. So uh, we're going to keep doing it that way. There's, I, th there's <clears throat> again, this idea that the institution has to like tell people what's good for them and, and what they should be doing rather than ex like trusting that Krishna is in everyone's heart. 
And the sign of someone's advancement is that they become independently thoughtful using Srila Prabhupada's language. They yeah. become independently thoughtful about how can I push on this mission? How can I do something for Mahaprabhu and my spiritual master? It's it's a vaity, you know, it's a stunted experience that it always has to come straight from the authority of the institution, whatever. That spontaneity and self-moved um, uh, impetus is the hallmark of somebody making advancement. So I just, I want to encourage that and see that. And, and naturally people will fail and, and make mistakes. And, you know, we've, we've gone the wrong direction sometimes. But when you're being faithful, then you're sensitive to Krishna and Guru indicating, hey, turn around or go the other direction or, or something else needs to be added. You're sensitive to that. So it's it's self-correcting when you're with the parampara. I would love to hear the realization on maintaining a focused vision while also bringing in a variety or people with different needs, agendas, etc. Or is it more adaption to the needs of the community? What are the boundaries with that? Nice question. Yeah, nice question. Um, and Odaria, she's doing this wonderful service of running a school. So that's a very, uh, that, that's a double-edged sword because on one side, it provides a very clear uh, purpose and goal, right? The, the children's well-being, providing a wholesome education. On the other side, then that, you know, people's needs and interests, concerns otherwise may have to get sacrificed on the altar of having a nice school. So the, the tension there, I think for you specifically, Odaria, you know, the school is the reason that you're together. And the wholesome experience of having the school is is a natural kind of um, thing to give deference to. In our situation, uh, I, and you guys are trending more towards a, a community in, in general, just a strong sangha of like-minded devotees centered around taking care of your children in this wholesome way with the school. So as that begins to roll out, you can become a lot more um, laissez-faire, hands-off about the other elements. <laughs> how other things go and how people choose to approach different other ideas about Krishna conscious culture, those become less important to like kind of manage hands on. Just trust that, that if you're taking care of the school in a nice way, showing the example there, then the other things will work themselves out in a healthy way. And for us, that's always been at the center, our community center. We have, we like to think that we have strong programs where there's quality kata and kirtan. And this, th what's the purpose of a Krishna conscious community if not to create strong experiences of Krishna Kata and Kirtan? So we tr that's our goal. That's our focus. That's what we're here for. And we emphasize that both in bringing people who can provide that, but then also trying to nourish each other in, in a, developing our ability to do that. And that has allowed the other things that people are concerned with at different times to keep their natural subordinate position. And it's okay if, if people get a little excited about something that's a bit of a tangent for a little while because the power of Kata and Kirtan will always bring it back. Very nice. I heard you guys are implementing uh, Kalash Abhishek's there at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry, I just had to say that. Oh my gosh. Uh, too funny. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we, wanted you to, we wanted you to come and be the Pujari. <laughs> Question two, what are some of the things we can do to build a network of Krishna conscious friendly or Krishna conscious supportive dharmic professionals? Uh, that's a really wonderful question. I, I mean, somebody's just got to do it, 
right? The, the friends of Krishna vibe. Um, I was discussing this with my friend a few days ago, who I mentioned temple president that I admire and um, appreciate their effort. They're involved right now <clears throat> in aggregating therapists and counselors and coaches who are like, you know, devotee approved. They're either devotees themselves or devotees have worked with them and they felt um, really helped by them. And so that, that they're providing that the mental health issue is its own serious question and yeah. just the level of harassment that people have experienced. And David Mitamaraj has a beautiful lecture, Cracking a Western City. It's like a three part seminar. The first third of this seminar, he just spends trying to convey to people, mostly his god brothers and older devotees, trying to convey to them how different today's young people are from the hippies, right? I... The level of harassment and exposure to, to sensual stimulation and the mistrust of authority and et cetera, how dramatically different, how much worse <laughs> it is now. And that's just 15 years ago. This was before social media, practically, when Maharaj was giving this discussion. So what to speak of now when kids are growing up with a drug in their hands? So the need for mental health and that kind of permission, this is another ashram you could have as a detox ashram. Forget, oh, you're not coming for sadhana yet. You don't deserve to think about sadhana. You know, you're not, deserves the wrong word, but you're not ready to think about steady sadhana yet. Yeah. You just need to get clear with all the junk that you've been avoiding your whole yeah. life. I think wisdom Quiet of the time. sages does that, I believe. Who what's, what's wisdom, that? wisdom of the sages? Yeah, great point. They, they have uh some anonymous uh, addiction anonymous something or other that they do like before they get into I think simultaneously maybe but but yeah, the great point. Yeah, so yeah, just do, having it um to the devotee's question this would just be great to take the initiative if you know people worthy of being on that list. Um yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, question three, is there a Grahasta anonymous model for Grahastas in mixed relationships when one partner is a devotee, uh, or sorry, one partner is not a devotee, but is supportive? Uh, no, we don't have anything formal yet on that Grahastas anonymous program. That, in fact, we don't, we haven't done it in a little while and it's now I'm feeling the need to reinvigorate that. I myself went through a divorce, so it's a little awkward to be promoting a Grihasta program, <laughs> but right. I learned a lot of lessons through that. That that could be a that that's another discussion. Mm. But I certainly these all of these dynamics are nuanced, and that's something to really like all these questions that are you're bringing out. That's a little different, right? The somebody's a devotee, the other's not a devotee, and there are successful people who have made that work uh, in very beautiful ways. It's not a death sentence, so to speak, but it is harder. And to just be able to be honest about that, we have a, a saying in our community, chant and be honest, right? Come and tell us what's really going on, and then we can really help you. <laughs> but if you're just hiding what's going on, you, you're not telling the doctor what's up, what's the situation, then the doctor can't necessarily prescribe the right medicine. So yeah, for every, even same-sex couples, I've, that's a whole arena that we're just both in the preaching field and internally in our community, we just have our heads in the sand about, and it's so sad to not see us supporting that community the way our philosophy is uniquely empowered to be able to support those people and encourage them and let them live their life materially while really making strides spiritually. We're practically the only ones that it's philosophically permissible for us to do that. And our heads are in the sand. It's so embarrassing. It's so sad. So yeah, all these nuances deserve our attention and deserve being allowed to happen. Mm. 
question four, have you had any thoughts or experiences around formally pooling resources to help retain families locally so tough times don't drive them away? I've always been intrigued by how the LDS church supports families through unemployment. Um, yeah, important question. We we have tried, this is a shift we made a few, yeah, now that this question is kind of reminding me of a, an explicit shift that we we made back in like 2015 or 16. We started saying we're no longer going to treat ashram people, you know, live, those living inside and those living outside. We know this kind of like yeah. class citizen vibe, right? Like you live yeah. outside, so we can't help you. <laughs> we can't support you. Uh, we stopped that. And instead, we started providing for our outside people as much as we provide for the inside people as much as we can. So we've given cars. We've uh, allowed people to stay in the ashram, you know, for have like two rooms in the ashram, a family for a couple months at a time in between spots or whatever. If, if we can, we do. And it's just it's inculcated faith in people. People like I'm going to get taken care of as best they can. Right. And that's the irony is that. Everyone knows ISKCON is not in a position to take care of people very well, but at present, the, the institution is not taking care of people as well as it could, right? So if you're not doing your best, then you're going to invoke the ire and mistrust of people, rightly so. So without even having to come up with formal programs, if you just do your best to provide what, you, what you've been provided, you offer that to your people, people will appreciate that and they'll notice would it be wonderful to have formal programs? Yes. My my first angle with that is going to be our Next Generation Council, um, which is a, a program we're developing for young people, mostly who've been born in the movement and, and that ashram experience we were mentioning earlier, to have a, a fund, basically a trust for them to make applications for micro grants and scholarships and loans to be able to pursue passions that they have. They want to travel. They want to start photography. They want to take a course. Well, here's 800 bucks or 2000 bucks to do it. Here's the resources you need to make that happen without having to, you know, go work a job at Starbucks for six months or whatever to um, be able to. Wow. I love that about, in, about, um, you know, giving, not making that inside person and an outside person, just like really making that equal because, because, you know, that's like investing in people and you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Not that you do it for like, Oh, some, this person might become a, you know, a multimillionaire in the future and help us like, but you're just like, for, you're like creating a member forever. Practically you're going to create a, a, a well-wisher, a member, a supporter for their lives, their whole life, basically, because you were there for them when they maybe had a hard time or something like that. I think that's so wonderful, to be honest. And I, and you know, I think I feel like that's a something that we should do a lot more because yeah. that's it's per people focused essentially. Absolutely, it's our opportunity. We have the capacity to serve, then we can. We should. Right. And right. people, as you're pointing out, they'll notice that. They'll remember that. Right, right. I uh, just wanted to see this comment. This is so encouraging. My husband and I are starting a little offering, a place to share bhakti, and I'm scared with the money already. Hmm. Listen to the listen to the earlier part. I don't know if you were listening, but uh, we discussed that. Uh, okay, let's see. Any other questions here? Yeah, the just a little thing about that. I mean, it's wonderful to have yeah. a sovereign space. Yeah. But Bhaktivinoda Thakur's vision of the um, the Nam Hut 
it's very prescient, the idea that you don't need temples, you don't need to, to have a storefront, so to speak. You can, in your home, you can create that temple experience for people. And the, the irony is we see like Airbnb and Uber, <laughs> these Netflix, these institutions which decentralized the industry that they were addressing. Bhaktivinoda Thakur had that vision 140 years ago, but still somehow we're so anchored to this idea that you need a temple you need a center in, in order to be able to preach. Not saying, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Yam, Yamanuja. Maybe you guys are at that place now where you, that's that's where your Sangha is and that's beautiful, that's exciting. But so many people are out there who never belong thinking about having a temple or having a preaching center or whatever, but you can still share Krishna consciousness with so many people, accepting that ethic of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, do it in your home. Hmm. If, if one must follow the order of the spiritual master with one's life and soul, then Diksha group is by definition a leadership position, correct? I guess this is when we were discussing. Oh, about... this, I see. So this is a, um, yeah. So the, the institution again, uh, maybe this question is speaking to the idea of one can be a guru without having a formal leadership position. So again, that's where ISKCON has, it's, it's sticky. It's difficult, but to draw that line, institutional leadership, temple president, GBC, um, trustee, board member, etc. you draw that line between that and spiritual leadership. So to just flesh it out from that example I gave, that person is barred from anything institutionally. That person's disciples is, are still able to have that person's sangha, take that person's guidance and do it faithfully. And... Again, according to the local temple president's flavor and the local sangha, that person's disciples can serve faithfully, can can contribute and can sit on the Vyasa sun, can hold board positions, etc. Mm. But making that separation between the institution sanctioning whether or not someone can be a guru makes all those decisions much easier. Because when you conflate them, then you get the confusion that we see now where it's it's clearly so unnatural to say that now they're not a guru and at the same time it's, it would be quite awkward to allow the person to continue in any institute formal leadership position mm. interesting uh, comment here what about people who think they have a better understanding of Srila Prabhupada's total teachings than senior devotees who have been studying and doing sadhana in a dedicated way for so many years well, I don't think it's a matter of thinking if they have a better understanding or not, or if they if they do have a better understanding or not. Mm, I guess there's, this is a flaw. What's that? I think this is a um, the next part of that. Is there any hypocrisy in thinking that you have most perfectly understood Prabhupada's authority, even without any hermeneutics for an integrated interpretation? Is there any hypocrisy in wielding your interpretation of cherry picked quotes to label senior devotees as hypocrites? What's hermeneutics again? I, I hear that word a lot. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's fair to say that I have no hermeneutical uh, background um, or have made an attempt to, you know, we haven't gotten into that discussion so much, but hermeneutics means how you understand that which is trying to be understood. And then specifically which within a religious context, some devotees say you can't read Prabhupada's letters. Only the books. You've heard that before, right. right? Only what's in purports. That's what Prabhupada wants you to know. <laughs> and the letters you can't involve or the morning walks you can't involve. So that's a hermeneutical choice. 
so how to make how to parse it you know Prabhupada said no harmonium uh but then we see people playing the harmonium and Srila Bhakti Siddhanta hated the harmonium whereas Prabhupada would play it sometimes right so do we make a rule out of that <laughs> that would be a hermeneutical decision maybe not a good one but that's hermeneutics okay so I uh just yeah I mean certainly people have and will continue to um say that I'm overstepping with some of the things I've shared here, but I'm on a, a mailing list that's comprised solely of a group of Prabhupada disciples who have been bringing this same point that I brought today to the GBC for the last 15 years. Really? So I've done my homework. I've, I've asked around. I'm not just pontificating. Right. I've, I've received something that I, I feel is um, wholesome and valuable. And I've met many senior devotees who feel the same way and are in different ways trying to advocate for this very simple and very the sovereign way <laughs> um, that, that Krishna has arranged it. They're trying to advocate for that, but they're also being ignored and, and dismissed and whatever. So I'm that's my point is that ignored and dismissed, but still Krishna's arrangement can't help but go on. So those of us who really value it and want to see it happening uh, kind of more externally, we just have to highlight that it already is. It's not a question of who approves and who doesn't approve. It's happening. And to highlight that and make that clear is the most powerful way to help everyone else get on board and recognize, oh, it won't be the end of the world. It'll actually be the beginning of things happening uh, substantially again. Mm. Thinking out loud here with decentralized guruship, it seems like advocating anarchy. What is there the need of ISKCON at all then? Property protection, intellectually and physically. That's clearly what Prabhupada saw the primary focus of the institution to be, um, was maintain the properties according to Pancharatric standards and make sure that my books are uh, propagated and, and safe. Um, okay. And again, if, the, if those things are being done, then education is the main service. ISKCON as a university is the way to, to kind of consider it, that you come and you take a, you take a disciple course <laughs> How to be a good Gaudiya Vaishnava disciple, that's a beautiful course to teach. How to be a good member of ISKCON, less so. So how to be a good Gaudiya Vaishnava. And then if that person takes that course and feels inspired by a person who is uh, you know, within the ISKCON community, great. And if they feel inspired by somebody outside of the ISKCON community, we should feel great. Mm. University of Michigan isn't mad when one of their students graduates and then go teaches at Harvard. They put that on their resume also. They advertise that, that we have these many people over at Harvard and this many people over at Yale. And because there's a, a recognition of the value of those institutions outside of this like silly fundamentalist idea that we're the only way. So to present the information authoritatively and to be the authority on presenting the information, if ISKCON were to make itself that, then naturally we would attract so many wholesome, capable people. But we, we both know many, uh, especially people in our generation, who started out in ISKCON and then went away. Yeah. Because they said, no thanks, way too suppressive, way too institutional, not my style. And they went and took shelter of someone else, not necessarily because their heart wasn't with somebody in the ISKCON Sangha, but because the institutional expectations were just suppressive. And right. they saw the writing on the wall, and so they said, no, thank you. Right. Uh, I just wanted to clarify this. This comment was, I got a message mm -hmm. here uh, that, uh, that comment was directed at someone who was implicitly critiquing Deva Madhava Prabhu. That wasn't directed at you personally. Uh, 
She said, could you please clarify that I very much know that David Madabu knows what hermeneutics are and has done his homework. So just to clarify that, sorry about that. Uh, The reason is because uh, I don't see comment threads per se and replies Mm -hmm. and things for all of who are watching this. I just see the comments like one by one in a very linear way. So Mm -hmm. I don't know who's replying to who. So yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, Okay. See here, and I, I appreciated that question. Actually, I was glad to be yeah. able to answer. It's kind of poor Vipaksha, so sure, sure. I, I I took it in that way when it was being presented. Yes. Um. Okay. Here, uh, we see more and more that inspired devotees are starting and running programs to serve specific purposes or groups of devotees. This seems a natural and healthy development. Is there any need for such programs to be in some way tethered to ISKCON? so that the movement benefits from the vitality and energy of such initiatives and doesn't continue to feel static and possibly outdated? Nice nice question. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, some of the things I've started are ISKCON and some of the things that we've started and are continuing are not formally ISKCON. So that that's another fry the fish in its own oil question. Um, and I would say chances are it shouldn't be ISKCON. Chance, chances are that it should be next to ISKCON, but not directly ISKCON. Because again, there's this tendency to expect ISKCON to do too much. Right. Right. And and we, we there's this... Um, like even in that subtle way of just like, oh, this is an ISKCON approved That's right. Thing. There's this paternalism that the institution has inculcated in us and that we have accepted that... ISKCON has to live every aspect of my life for me. And that's what it means for me to be Krishna conscious rather than again, recognizing ISKCON has educated me. And that's if I, I offer my obeisances to everyone who's ever contributed anything to ISKCON because of the education I received, <laughs> the understanding that relieved that, you know, broken hearted 20 something that was homeless in Detroit. That's because of ISKCON. And I recognize that. And I, I honor that. and want to offer that education for everyone. And if that education becomes the focus, then the natural result will be people like myself. I'm not special, but it's sad to me that I'm the only person in the last 30 years that started a, a community in North America that's sustained. I'm, I'm like the only one, practically speaking, aside from, you know, there's certain other projects you could talk about, but, you know, the, the, circ- the kind of like organic pop-up, we're like the only show that's done that in the last 30 years. And that's, that shows real signs of unhealthy dynamics. Yes. And, and so again, going back to like, what is this con's mandate education, give the Siddhanta in a faithful way from people that are faithful themselves practicing. And then people will be able to work it out. Trust in Guru and Krishna, trust in the Parampara, trust in the Sangha, the Vaishnavas to allow the rest to happen in a very healthy way. And then we don't have to have this um, membership-based idea. Is it ISKCON? Is it not ISKCON? Is it approved? We'll know. Is it approved or not? Because we were educated. (laughs) We know what's good and what's not good ourselves. We don't need a board to be telling us. And then we'll be able to make healthy choices and align ourselves with healthy organizations that are supportive to ISKCON's purposes. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, that's something I've I've really been struggling with because I've you know I've had Padmanabh Maharaj on, and like the first question someone tells me is like, "Oh, well, part of Iskand? Where is he? Iskand? Is he? Is what? Where is he from? From Iskand? 
is he from ISKCON? Is he, is he, where's it, which ISKCON center is he from? And I'm like, listen to what this Prabhu Maharaj is saying. Like, listen to the nectar that is, you know, he is so fantastic Vaishnava. What does it matter is he, if he's ISKCON or not? Like, do your own homework. Do your own homework and figure out yourself if this is someone that you should hear from and this is someone you should, uh, you know, take their advice or, or you know, is this is a sadhu. You know, why does it have to be that kind of – anyways, rant over. But I agree with you know Mitra Prabhu, the Prabhupada disciple. Yeah, yeah, of course. He had this really clever cartoon a few years ago. It was like Nard Muni and Vyasa. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, walking into a temple. Sorry, Prabhu, you can't give class. You can't give class. You're not Iskand, Nardmonian. I think it was in Vyasadeva, Nardmonian. They're like, what? All right, bro. Man, okay. Um, okay, is there books that he recommended about community care? Oh, books that in general he recommended. Sorry, my English. Any books that you recommend uh, regarding community? Mm, or yeah, um, Godram Kapatavi. Uh, which is the uh, a couple letters that Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote to his um, Bhakti Riksha members. It's something that Jai Thakmaraj and the Congregational Development Ministry put together. And in there, Bhaktivinoda Thakur's vision for the Nam Hut is laid out really beautifully. And it, I, I consider Bhaktivinoda the architect of our culture. Prabhupada built the house the whole world could live in, but in order to build such a grand house, first there has to be an architectural blueprint. And the person that created that blueprint was Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Srila right. Prabhupada is the ongoing contractor of the project who's going out and finding the yous and the me's and his disciples and the future disciples to come and fill in the, you know, do the electricity, do the plumbing, do the painting, do the masonry. That's what the contractor does. And Prabhupada is brilliant at that execution. Bhaktivinoda Thakur laid out the, um, the shape of what our culture should look like in that book, Godram Kalpatavi, it's made really clear by the Congregational Development Ministry, the different roles that people can play, how th those roles support each other and how they're dependent on one another. And it allows you to really appreciate the different ways that different people are contributing. There's also a person, Marianne Williamson, uh, who's a, a secular, um, she has her spiritual side, but, um, her writings are, uh, or no, not Marianne Williamson. That's a course on miracles. I think, well, who am I thinking of? Uh, I'm, I'm going to draw a blank, but the, um, yeah, the secular world loves this word community. Now I got into a, um, a taxi in, in uh, Philadelphia off of a plane with a lady who <coughs> owns an ice cream company. She was telling me about community. <laughs> And it was like, really, it really struck me. I was like, oh, yeah, Mitra Prabhu. <laughs> um, it really struck me that somebody who sells ice cream could be using the same word as I do when I'm trying to, you know, like share Krishna consciousness. So wow. making sure we have a substantial understanding of the word community and not just yeah. this like commercialized, trendy version of the word community. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Godrum Kapatavi is the first book that comes to mind for me. Sure, sure. And then the, the Chaitanya Sharitamrita <laughs> as a vision of community. That's right. that's the other thing I want to say, that this is our archetype. This is our example. Our In our Harmony Collective community, 
We have the CC, which is our cabinet and council. Those are the people, the cabinet is the decision makers, the executives, and then the council are people chosen by the local community members to represent them. They're kind of like the Brahminical presence, the third party. When the mm -hmm. cabinet are making decisions, the council is there to let us know how the community is feeling. So the CC, as that acronym stands for, we're wanting to model the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the CC in our dealings, and that's our meditation. How can we create more of that atmosphere that's evinced in the Chaitanya Charitamrita? So that is our community building manual, uh, is how the Vaishnavas deal with each other in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Beautiful. If the institution is about education and standard setting, does that mean the local representatives of ISKCON would be qualified before starting a temple project, having Bhakti Shastri, Bhakti Vaibhav, Bhakti Vedanta titles? I think that's a natural thing to uh, expect or institutionalize. I, I think that we see in Prabhupada's writings, he did want that of people he saw as uh, holding leadership positions, that they have... Um, be firmly grounded in the Shastra. So, so I think that's a, a healthy expectation. You know, one of the, if you wanted to change something right now and you weren't gonna change the guru thing, the next thing to do would be to create an accountability structure for leaders. Because right now, no matter what temple you're in, I can say with certainty, you don't know how to remove your temple president if you need to. There is not a clear procedure for how to do that nor do you know how to establish a temple president if you need to if that if either one had to be done it would be pandemonium it would be confusion it would be conjecture it would be gossip it would be this one that one typical nepotism mafia experience so to create a clear structure how does one become established as a leader how does one become removed as a leader if you break the conditions of accountability that would be a big step in the direction of creating a, a space again where people feel safe to offer their heart and having shastric you know underpinned qualifications i'm not so hot on the like the courses myself because i know some again the disciples course it's like just because you took that doesn't mean that you know what it means to be a disciple so i'm more interested in like metrics of actual siddhantic demonstration like can you speak about Guru Tattva in a, in a real way. Can you speak about Jiva Tattva? Can you speak about Bhakti Tattva authoritatively? And if you took a Bhakti Shastri course to be able to do that, then good. But that's not the only way that you um, can get to that place of understanding. Um, the, form, the study of the Shastra is essential. The formal study of it through a course offered by the institution, not necessarily. Mm. Uh, someone here says, Namra censors the Purvapaksha. I take offense to that. I don't oh, censor anybody. On. So the reason I didn't post your comments, Prabhu, is because your comments are like that long and you need to make them concise. If you want to see them on the screen, you got to make them concise. I'm not censoring anybody. I don't like censorship. But um, anyways, we can uh, hash it out on the comment section later on because we're out of time here. Um, Deva Madhava Prabhu, can you please give us a some parting words for our listeners? Please, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, boy, well, I, I appreciate all the engagement that the devotees offer. I see there's there's quite a few comments. And, um, chant and be honest. Happiness comes as a byproduct of honesty. Uh, somebody wanted some sasha. So sadhava, Prabhupada translates this word as thoroughly honest. One who is a sadhava can become a sadhaka. 
But before we get this sadhava down, before we become a thoroughly honest person, we won't be able to relish the process. We won't be able to receive the, the support of the sadhus in our community. And every, everything will continue to exist on the level of pretense where I need you to look like a good devotee. So I feel like a good devotee myself because I'm not really getting a taste. I'm just in the, uh, the pageant of Krishna consciousness rather than the process. So when we get honest and straightforward with each other, which happens in small circles, whether you're part of a, there's a 20,000 person church out in California. They don't let people come to the church for two years. There's a seven step process before the person is invited to the church. And that's practically like initiation. And in that process of two years, that person is welcomed into the home of congregants. They get to share their heart, share their feelings, share their experiences of where they've been. They get discipled according to the Bible. They have Bible study together. And that entering into the church is like an initiation for them. And recognizing that no ISKCON temple is ever going to be able to interface in the profound way that you are with an individual is the first step to making you know the preaching really happen again creating that space where someone can come honest honestly express their frustration with the material existence to you and then you give them solutions that you're applying in your life that's the movement and the, the temples are a resource you know a, a library a university however you want to put it for things that support that experience that you have to be the one to give them um, that's what I would like to encourage everybody to see. Wow. Deva Madhavaru, I, I, am, I admire you very much. And, and I, you're, my admiration for you has deepened even more from sitting here and conversing with you for almost two hours. And I think a lot of devotees are also, I see in the comments, showing their appreciation to your, to your maturity, uh, to your knowledge and to your, you know, your overall, like, building of community and how to do that people before projects. I think it's so wonderful. So beautiful. I look forward to coming to Ypsilanti again. I am just like counting the days when I can come see you all again, because it was such a, such a beautiful time. And I is mutual. So yes. don't delay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, the only thing is the weather there. I mean, that's the only thing that's stopping. Anyway, me. you're, you're in Jersey right now. <laughs> Winters are not that bad. I hear it's really bad in, in, in Michigan. It, that propaganda for it's just propaganda it's, really yeah and i don't mind it because it keeps people away but uh you're not one of the ones we want to keep away <laughs> the, the winters are pleasant it's when the snow is falling the shastra is calling it's a good reason to stay inside and cuddle up but really yeah. we have four seasons here and you see why krishna made four seasons there's a time to do certain things a time to stop doing other things yes. and it creates a really beautiful cycle of, of a year so don't be awesome. shy Awesome. Thank you so much again. Thank you for all our listeners. Uh, we have uh, tomorrow, um, Navina Nirada Prabhu, the legendary book distributor, is going to come on and talk about the power of appreciation. Yeah. That's the uh, title that he had. He wanted to speak about that. So I was like, hey, let's do it. And um, again, thank you, Deva Madhava Prabhu. If you want to get in touch with Deva Madhava Prabhu, you can get in touch with him over Facebook. That's his name there on the screen. Send him a message. Show him your appreciation. Please like and subscribe this and tell your friends about this podcast. This is the number one Hare Krishna podcast. That's the late morning program. Devamada Prabhu, uh, stay on. I'm going to turn off the live, but everyone have a great rest of your evening. Hare Krishna. Thanks, Devotees. Thanks, Prabhu. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna, Hare Hare.